0: Let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll be happy to get one into your hands, and it's going to be one of three passages that we look at together, so you're going to want to let your fingers do some walking and pay close attention to uh, what's going on in our time together. Jeremiah 31, you'll find that right about the middle of your Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, just after the Psalms, Proverbs. We're in the middle of a Christmas series called All Things New. All Things New. Because at Christmas, of course, we give all things new. And more importantly, in our world, God is making all things new. He's making all things new. After the fall of man into sin, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God has been renewing and restoring His creation. Starting with us, praise the Lord, and heading to a new heavens and a new earth. and Where God says at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, 5, regarding the new heaven and the new earth, I am making, behold, I am making all things new. But it doesn't start there. It started all the way back in Genesis. When Adam and Eve decided on our behalf to sin, enter the world into deep darkness, God's making all things new. And a major part of that is a new covenant, a new promise, and Christmas, here it is, Christmas celebrates the coming of Jesus to make all things new through a new covenant. I'm pretty sure you've never thought of Christmas in that respect. But that's exactly the gist of it. Christmas celebrates the coming of Jesus to make all things new through a new covenant. Unfortunately, the word covenant isn't a word that we use very much, but it's certainly all over the Bible. All over the Bible. In fact, the two main sections of the Bible are referred to that way. Did you realize that? That Testament means covenant. There's so the Old Testament, the Old Testament referring to the Old Covenant that God made with the ancient Israelites. And then there's the New Testament referring to the New Covenant that is operative today and offered today. Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's literally all over the Bible and used throughout. And so let's make sure that we are on the same page and we know what a covenant is. A covenant is a binding promise between two parties that governs their relationship. That's as concise as I could make it. A covenant is a binding promise, we get that, between two parties, I think we get that, that governs their relationship. Hopefully we will get that. Think marriage, for instance. A covenant between a man and a Woman, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in-house, for better or worse, till death do us part. It's a binding promise between two parties that governs their relationship for life. That's, that's a covenant. It's, in fact, that's alluded to in the Bible, in the book of Malachi, the marriage covenant. Same for the covenants that God makes with us and us with Him. They're promises that govern a relationship with Him. A relationship. That's the whole idea of a covenant versus a contract. And there is a relationship that is entered into. And in, in our covenant, covenants and cov, covenant and covenants with God, they come with promises, with stipulations, like things that we have to do. Covenants are promises with stipulations. You need to do this. and You need to do that. And both parties, sometimes different things that they have to do. And there, there are guidelines that come with covenants, things we can't do. And certainly, there are blessings that come with, dis, with obedience and consequences for disobedience. A covenant is a binding promise between us and God with certain requirements and rewards. And while there are several in the Bible forming a framework, if you will, on which to build his kingdom, the new covenant is the most important one in the Bible because it's the one that all the others point to, uh, the one that all the others lead to and, and find their fulfillment in. The new covenant is the one that ties them all together and gives them ultimate meaning just like last week, I hope that by the time we're done, you understand the new covenant like never before. Especially for those of you who have entered into the new covenant with God. Those of you who are saved by grace through faith, repentance of your sin. Whether you knew it or not, you're a part of the new covenant. And I hope that your heart is full. That you are amazed at what God has promised and what what God has brought about. And if you're not a part of the new covenant, if you've never yet embraced it, man, I hope you will. By the time we're done, I hope you will. Because ultimately, Christmas celebrates the coming of Jesus to make all things new through a new covenant in you. True. True. But it started centuries before Christmas. Jeremiah 31, 31. Take a look. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. First reference to it in the Bible. First one. The days are coming, God said, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Let's stop there and start with this. Number one, the new covenant was promised through Jeremiah. Jeremiah. It was promised through Jeremiah. It's the first of six aspects here of the new covenant that you can't afford to miss if you're going to get a fully orbed view of all that it is, all that it stands for, and how it applies to your life and to our life. Six aspects. A promise was promised, foretold, no less than 550 years before Jesus was born. That's plus or minus a decade or two. That's when Jeremiah was writing. That's when God revealed this to him and he put pen to paper eventually on it. 550 years before Jesus was born, a promise was promised. Almost 600 years before it became operative. And though it's ancient history, you can't afford to miss it because it increases our trust and our hope. Our trust in God's word that what he says he does, this is yet another example of it, And our hope that even in the darkest days of our lives, God is still at work making all things new. Even in the darkest days. In fact, that's the context here in Jeremiah. Dark days. He was prophesying during a time of terrible suffering. The Israelites had been divided for 300 years, hence the reference to the House of Israel and House of Judah, they were divided. House of Israel, the ten northern tribes, House of Judah, the two southern tribes. They had been divided since the time of Solomon for 300 years. Suffering, difficulty, at times warring against each other. And Not only that, but they were languishing as he was writing. They were languishing, all of them, in Babylonian captivity having been overthrown in Jerusalem and the temple completely sacked. And now here they were in exile, uh, captives of a a foreign nation, suffering some more. And for Jeremiah himself, he was exiled to Egypt, forced there while he was writing this. And yet, God gives him a message of hope. Behold, he says, listen up, hear it. Behold, the days are coming when I will make All things new. All things new. That's the gist of what he said with this new covenant. All things. I mean, they were operating under the old covenant. And he's like, I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to make a new one. With both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Divided and rebellious and exiled as they were, God was still promising a new relationship. Loved one, divided. And on the out and out that you may be, sinful and rebellious as you have been, God is still promising a new relationship, still offering a new relationship. New to the ancient Israelites back in Jeremiah in that it was not going to be like the covenant, verse 32. It was not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt 800 years before, referring to the, that time of exile and captivity when God released them from the bondage of 400 plus years. It's, it's not going to be like that covenant that I made then with them. My covenant that they broke, he says, though I was their husband declares the Lord. A metaphor saying I was their loving leader and their loving provider and their loving protector. Like this isn't going to be you know, some Windows 2.0, 2.1. This is going to be a completely new apple. Come on. For this is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. What? What? I thought it was written on tablets. I will put my law within them my desires within them. I will actually give them my desires to be their desires, the desires of their heart. And I will write it on their hearts. Like no longer are God's desires and God's commands going to be an external thing, but an internal thing. Written not on tablets of stone, but impressed on our very soul. That's the idea. And I will be their God, he says, And they shall be my people. Nothing changed in that respect. That was part of the Mosaic covenant all the way back in Exodus. But here, given the context, there's this aspect that it's not just a corporate thing. That I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people corporately. But that there was a a personal, a private aspect to it as well. An individual aspect. I'm going to be their God individually and they individually will be my people. Verse 34 and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. No, no, no. For they shall all know me. Once again, personally. They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. In other words, verse 34 there, They won't have to be taught to know God under the new covenant. They'll know they'll know. In their heart of hearts, they'll know Him. They'll know Him personally. Why? Because it's a part of the covenant. It's a part of the very promise that God is making. See, under the old covenant, you may have been a member of God's people, but you didn't necessarily know Him close up. You didn't necessarily have a a relationship with Him. You had to be taught. You had to be shown. You you had to be near like the priests. But under the new covenant, they shall all know me, he says. Second part of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, their wrongdoing, and I will remember their sin no more. The implication being that repeated sacrifices Would no longer be needed under the new covenant like they were under the old. Sacrifices of lambs and bulls and heifers, as we'll see later on, no longer be needed. Forgiveness would be full and final under the new covenant. What a promise! What a covenant! What a blessing. They only had to wait six centuries for the fulfillment. Six centuries. I mean, we wait six minutes for something and we lose all hope. Becky and I walked into Sam's Club yesterday and, and we got about, I don't know, 15 feet inside the doors after you show whatever you have to show. She usually does it, I don't know, with some sort of card. And, and we look over and we see the lines at the cash registers and people, and we almost left the cart sitting right there and walked out. We're like, we're not waiting five minutes to go through that. No way. There's an app for that. There is an app for that. The problem is hers was broken. She couldn't get it back up. In fact, we kept walking through the aisle on in, and we, that's when we got And She's like, It doesn't work. I'm like, We're out of here. Get your purse, Martha. I'm like, We stayed. We stayed. I mean, we wait six minutes for something and we lose all hope. And six weeks nearly shatters our trust. We pray for something for six months and But the promises of God ought to be a different story. And they are a different story. The new covenant was, because after centuries of waiting, number two, it was foreshadowed by Jesus. The new covenant was promised through Jeremiah. And 600 years later, it was foreshadowed by Jesus. That's the second aspect you can't afford to miss. It was foreshadowed at none other than the Last Supper, you know, when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room the night before his death, and they were remembering and commemorating and eating the Passover meal that God-fearing Jews had been observing since the time of the Exodus. And at one point in the midst of the meal, Jesus changed everything. Foreshadowing something that had been promised long ago. It says that he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it. That was the same. He broke it and gave it to them saying This is my body, no longer symbolic of the sacrifice and suffering of old, the body of God's people at large, ancient Israelites. No longer representing their suffering and so on. This represents my sacrifice and suffering. This is my body. That was new. And so is this, which is given for you. For you, personally. No longer representing the brokenness of old. It now represents my brokenness and my suffering, Jesus said, foreshadowing his death the very next day. The very next day. It was a foreshadowment. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Like, like eat this in remembrance of me, at which point they had to be scratching their head and thinking, remembrance of what? You're right here, alive and well. And likewise, Luke records he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Familiar as they must have been, having walked and talked and been taught by Jesus for upwards of three years, bells and whistles must have been going off in their head. That's that's what Jeremiah said. That's what Jeremiah wrote. Did you hear that? Did he say new covenant? This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. After 600 years of waiting, 400 of which were silent when it came to God's prophets, speaking on his behalf. After all of that, Jesus refers to the prophecy given through Jeremiah and says, this is it. This is it. Like this cup and what it contains now has new meaning. It's now symbolic of God's new covenant promise. His promise of a new relationship, I will be your God and you will be my people personally. His his covenant, his promise of new desires in our heart that he would actually write on us internally, make a part of our fabric, it's it's symbolic of his complete forgiveness, full and forever and vital. After lying dormant and nearly forgotten, Jesus resurrected the new covenant with one sentence foreshadowing his death. It's the second aspect you can't afford to miss. It was foreshadowed by Jesus. And it was foreshadowed with a death that included the shedding of his blood. That's the third aspect you can't afford to miss. It was secured with his blood. Secured with his blood. And to see this one, I'd like for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, will you? Toward the end of your Bible... Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. I don't know about you, but it's one of the more difficult books of the Bible for me to turn to because the thumbs that I am, sometimes I, I either go all the way past it to Revelation, to the Concordance or Maps or whatever, and, and then, or I precede it. Maybe you don't have those issues. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. I want you to see that what Jesus alludes to and foreshadows at the Last Supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, in my blood, what he alludes to. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes explicit. Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 11, in the midst of a discussion about the Old and New Covenants, that's the context here. He's talking about the Old and New Covenants, this writer of Hebrews is. He's talking about how the, the Old Covenant is, is passing away, the New Covenant is, is coming in, and there's this overlap right now in the midst of their lives there in the first century. And he says in verse 11, but when Christ appeared, you know, as opposed to before under the Old Covenant, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, A high priest simply meaning a mediator and communicator of things associated with the new covenant as opposed to the priests that served under the old covenant in the temple and the tabernacle when Christ appeared as high priest of good things that have come. Then then through the greater and more perfect tent, referring to heaven, as opposed to the tabernacle, the tent of the tabernacle under the old covenant, A tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Still speaking about heaven. When Christ appeared, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, the very presence of God in heaven. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like was done in the Old Testament, but by means of his, here it is, but by means of his own blood. He entered into God's presence by means of his own blood, Thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal forgiveness. Full and final and forever. Just like Jeremiah prophesied. Just like. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, you know, all part of the particulars of the Old Covenant if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if the the old covenant cleansed outwardly and superficially and temporarily, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, our heart, from dead works to serve the living God. How much more? Way more. Way more. The blood of Jesus purifies way more because it's way more precious and it's way more effective and it's way more lasting and all the rest that you can put after the words, way more. Like no wonder God could promise through Jeremiah that he would remember our sins no more. It was... Paid for with the life of Jesus, His Son. No longer securing a temporary forgiveness, but an eternal one. An eternal redemption. An eternal covenant. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Jesus shed His blood for you to have a relationship with you Ever. Amen. It was secured with His blood. And fourth, it was sealed with the Spirit. The new covenant was promised through Jeremiah, foreshadowed by Jesus, secured with His blood, and it's sealed, present tense, it's sealed with His Spirit. Remember Ezekiel 36 from last week? It's the very thing that we saw. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will give you a new heart, God said, and I will put my spirit within you, within you, kind of like writing the law on our hearts. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, my law. Sounds a lot like Jeremiah 31, doesn't it? Ezekiel was prophesying just on the heels of Jeremiah, maybe a little bit of contemporary overlap. We don't know if Ezekiel knew what Jeremiah was preaching and talking about, but we definitely know under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they were talking about the same things because there's some of the same ver- verbiage. Verbiage like, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What kind of a heart? A new heart, a soft heart, no longer a hard heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God with them. God in them. Via his spirit. Jeremiah promised it. Ezekiel clarified it a little more. And Paul affirmed it. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Don't miss the connections here. Like Paul would have been well familiar with the Old Testament scripture and even if he wasn't, I'm pretty certain that the Holy Spirit would have impressed these things on him so that not only he connected the dots but we connect the dots. So that we are all the more in awe of all that God has promised and all that God has done and all that God is doing. In him, Paul writes, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Promised by who? Well, first Ezekiel, and then Jesus Himself. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the inheritance of the covenant, life with God, to be His people, and He our God. Until we acquire possession of it, face to face, we receive these things and experience these things. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You think? To the praise of His glory? Fulfilling all that had been said and promised and prophesied from of old? Like the new covenant is not only secured by the blood of God's Son, but it's sealed by the presence of God's Spirit. Guaranteed. Guaranteed that new covenant. Talk about blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Don't miss it. And don't miss out. Don't miss out on the blessings of the new covenant. Don't miss being a part of it. Don't risk the judgment of missing out on the new covenant and failing to be a part of it. Make sure you believe. Make sure you believe and receive. In fact, that's the fifth aspect here. It applies to those who believe. The new covenant applies to those who believe. Those who believe the promise. And only those who believe, those who believe in Jesus, and all those who believe, not just, you know, Jews from the house of Judah or, or the house of Israel, as Jeremiah first said it, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Romans ten thirteen. Because it's those of faith, it says in Galatians three: seven, who are the sons of Abraham, who are the Israelites, the true Israel. It's those who who belong to Jesus are the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. It's the children of promise, and not the children of blood, but the children of promise who are Israel in our day, Romans 9, 5, and 6. That's what the New Testament teaches. And so we know, just based on that, that the new covenant promise of old from Jeremiah applies to us Now. Not only that, but the writer of Hebrews here applies the new covenant promise directly to believers by quoting the entire passage from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, right here in Hebrews chapter 8. Do you see it there, maybe a page or so before in your Bible? Maybe it's kind of indented a little bit. It's the longest quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New. I think, to give emphasis to it, emphasizing that it indeed applies to the people of God to whom the whole book of Hebrews is written, including us. And it drives home two main points. This quoting of Jeremiah 31 here in Hebrews 8, it drives home two main points. A, the new covenant applies directly to those who believe. And B, the old covenant doesn't. It, it doesn't. Any longer apply. Look at verse 13 of Hebrews 8. Hebrews eight thirteen. After quoting Jeremiah 31 in verses 8 to 12, it says in verse 13, In speaking of a new covenant, He, God, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old in this transition time, this overlap time of the old age and the the new age that Jesus has instituted, what what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, the old covenant no longer applies. Not the particulars and consequences. The principles still apply, yes. The principles, but not the particulars. It's obsolete in that respect. Obsolete in governing our relationship with God. It's the second reason it's quoted at length and emphasized. The first is that it applies to those who believe. Those who believe God's promise of a promise. God's promise of a covenant. And on that one, look at verse 15 of Hebrews 9. Just the very next chapter, right after the passage we just got through reading, Hebrews nine fifteen. It applies to those who believe. After saying that the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience, it says, therefore, verse 15, He is the mediator of a new covenant. That is, He is, Jesus is the go-between of a new relationship between us and God. So that those who are called, ding, 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 those who believe may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Loved one, if you believe in Jesus and repent of your sin to live for him, you're called. You're called. The scriptures are not intending for that to be a mystery to us. You need not sit there and think and, and fear, oh my goodness, Like, am I, am I called? Am I called? If you believe in Jesus and you've repented of your sin to live for him, you're called. That's the full teaching of the Bible. This is simply shorthand for it here using the word call referring to God's election and predestination of those who will come to him. And the result of that, the result of believing, the result of being called is that the new covenant applies to you. Including the promised eternal inheritance once again of a new heart New desires, new relationship, and new life. It applies to those who believe. And don't miss the reason. Second part of the verse. Jesus is, a, is the mediator of a new covenant. Since a death has occurred, the death of Jesus, a death has occurred that redeems them rescues those who believe from the transgressions committed under the first covenant transgressions and sins that were only temporarily forgiven transgressions and sins that had to be covered with a sacrifice over and over and over and over and over and over again praise god he put us on the side of the cross The point being that the death of Jesus ensures that the new covenant applies to all those who believe. All those and only those who believe in the promise. All those and only those who believe in Jesus and believe in his death to pay for your sins. Oh, of all things this morning, don't miss that. Don't miss that. And don't miss Does it apply to you? Do you believe? And then last, sixth aspect that you can't afford to miss regarding the new covenant. It's remembered at the Lord's table. The new covenant is promised, foreshadowed, secured, sealed, applied, and remembered. And to see that, let's turn to one, one more scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. 1 Corinthians 11 right after romans first and second corinthians galatians ephesians first corinthians 11 verses 23 to 26 it's a passage that i trust you're well familiar with if you've been around here for any length of time because you hear me quote it at the lord's table at our times of communion in a scathing rebuke for failing to show proper reverence and fear of the Lord at his table. Paul says in the last part of verse 22, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He had just laid out how they were making an absolute mess of this commemoration that Jesus, like we saw in Luke 22, had commanded and had observed himself after saying you you've made an absolute mess of this your heart's not in it it's all about you he says shall i commend you in this no i will not for i received from the lord what i also delivered to you in other words you know better you know better you know better than to be so flippant and cavalier you know better than to come to the lord's table and just with a, a check off mindset in your heart because you're thinking about who knows what I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Here it is. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, once again, he connects it to the new covenant, just like we saw in Luke. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in memory of my death, Jesus said, to secure the covenant, the new covenant in my blood when we eat and drink at the Lord's table, we're not just remembering the death of Jesus, we're remembering the new covenant, the new covenant death of Jesus. Oh, that we would put those things together in our minds and heart. Oh, that God would write that on our heart this morning, and we would never forget it. That at the Lord's table, times of communion, we're not just remembering and commemorating the death of Jesus, we're remembering and commemorating the new covenant death of Jesus, that His Blood bought in guarantees. But that's not it. We're also proclaiming it. Very next verse, verse 26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Shall I commend you in this? Shall I commend you in this? He says. No I will not. A. Because I told you. You know better. And, and B. This has massive massive implications. For your testimony. Our testimony to one another. Our testimony. To those among us who don't yet believe. We remember the new covenant death of Jesus at his table. And we proclaim it. That it's true. And glorious. And precious and personal. And we do so until Jesus returns to receive us unto himself. And there's no longer any need to proclaim it. Because there's no longer any chance to apply it. On the part of those who don't believe. Oh, we're going to continue to proclaim the new covenant death of Jesus for all eternity. I'm convinced of it. We're going to continue to glorify Him and praise Him for all that He's done, for sure. But not for the purpose of evangelism. Not for the purpose of bearing witness to those who don't believe. That's for now. In addition to glorifying God. You see, just by the very acts of eating and drinking, we remember and proclaim the gospel just by the very silent drama of it. We remember and proclaim the new covenant death of Jesus that saves our soul and makes us whole. Unfortunately far too many in our day don't remember and proclaim with the right heart just like some in Paul's day. They treat it lightly they participate flippantly. Don't go there. And if you are there, stop. Because verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, unworthy not showing proper honor. And proper honor. For the very thing that we're doing. And remembering. Whoever does that will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Guilty of not remembering Him rightly in all that He's done. Guilty of not proclaiming Him rightly in all that He's doing. Guilty of not honoring Him rightly as we should. Let a person examine himself then, verse 28. Examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself for what? Sin? A heart of sin? Unconfessed sin? Ill motives? When we come to the Lord's table, we ought to examine ourselves. And if we don't, we ought not participate. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, examining the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's not why all have died. It's not why all are sick, Paul says, but that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If you don't come clean, don't participate for your own sake. But if we judged ourselves truly, he says, if we truly examined ourselves, verse 31, we would not be judged by God. But when we are judged by the Lord, whether through sickness or otherwise in our lives, we are disciplined so that God, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In God's grace and mercy, we are disciplined for the sake of correction and salvation so that we don't go the way of condemnation. Praise God for that. No matter how difficult the discipline is in the moment, no matter what it feels like, no matter how painful, He loves us. That's why He does it, Hebrews 12. The Lord's table is no small thing because remembering and proclaiming the new covenant death of Jesus is no small thing promised foreshadowed secured sealed applied and remembered don't miss it don't miss it and don't miss out don't miss out on God's work to make all things new especially in you let's pray father impress these truths on our hearts God, impress these truths in our hearts. Don't let a a single word that needs to be heard and applied go by the wayside, Lord. Don't let it fall on hard ground. Impress them in our hearts, God, and be exalted in our presence as we remember and appreciate and consider all that you've promised and all that you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.